Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15, 15 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I had been working as a forest ranger for almost five years. A ranger's day could consist of anything from collecting firewood to tracking down missing hikers and my day began like most. I would wake up early, walking into work and grabbing my binoculars. As I was about to drive out of the forest, I got a call. That day, I was given a new assignment. I met up with another colleague, a fellow ranger, and we went to the center of this area where somebody had been reporting hearing strange screaming coming from around a cave system nearby. My partner and I decided that I would be able to handle it by myself. He had other things to do, and this was just another run-of-the-mill investigation for me. After he left, I headed towards that area where there had been several unreported mounds to this cave system. Now let me give you some information. This cave system runs pretty deep, and there are guided tours. But I also know that this cave system is very expansive, and also having a lot of unidentified entrances and holes that can lean deeper into the system. These are also off-trail, so myself, I've never actually experienced finding more of these, although I know hikers have reported finding many, and even leaving makeshift markers to let other hikers know this was an entrance. The parts of the ground here were also dangerous, meaning if you step on the wrong part, the ground below you could collapse, falling into a tunnel. So I had to be very careful about how I approached this entire search. The good news is I wasn't hearing any screaming, so that could be good or bad news. The bad news meaning the hiker, whoever was stuck there, 
could have been deceased or what. But the good news being that maybe the hiker had gotten themselves out. Anyway, my heart was pounding just by the sheer adrenaline of it. I didn't know why, but something told me to run. It was this feeling in the pit of my gut. As soon as I got there, right around the cavern system, the wind picked up, and everything seemed colder than it already was. A gust. Now I could have begun my investigation in the main entrance, but as I was planning, I heard the scream. It sounded like a person, but they were maybe a couple hundred feet away north. So I marched through the trees, looking, following the source of the screaming, yelling out, Can you hear me? Can you respond? And the screaming ceased. I followed along the rock wall and found this crude hole in the ground, maybe no larger than five feet. It was right by a rotted tree stump with only one branch on it. This, I knew, probably went down into one of the cave systems. This, by the way, was probably no more than 200 feet away from the main entrance. After crouching down, I was able to slide down at a 45-degree angle into this cave system, landing in a small chamber that I think connected to the others. I always carry a flashlight with me, so I took it out and turned it on. As soon as I did that, the caves plunged into darkness as my battery instantly died. That's when I heard a loud crash. I turned around, or I should say turned to meet the noise, and my flashlight popped back on. There, like out of some sort of sick Stephen King novel, was this grotesque figure. Large black eyes covering its entire body, stretching its arms out and moving toward me. And terrified, I wanted to turn and run, but didn't have time as there was another one of these beings coming from the opposite side of the cave approaching. I turned as fast as I could and fled up the 45-degree incline about the cave. Just as I was turning to climb up, I could hear a third one approaching from directly behind me. Now I had one coming from my left, my right, and behind me. This one, as I turned and looked, was larger than the other two. Completely terrified out of my mind, and the sounds of screaming were now apparent, coming deeper in the cavern. I don't know if it was an injured hiker, or if these things were making the noise, luring anybody into this tiny crevice, this chamber into the earth. Like I said, the opening to this cavern wasn't large, but I never in a million years would have expected to find things like this. This was horror movie status. I didn't tell anybody else about what I found and kept it to myself. After climbing out of that hole, I ran and I ran and I ran some more, getting back to the station later on. I didn't say a word, and I knew the other rangers wouldn't believe me. And what would I tell them? That I found a cave full of half-arachnids, half-creatures. I mean, they'd probably think I was crazy. Now I've kept this sacred for a while, but how long can I keep it from the rest of the world? Will my story ever be told to other people, or should I just stay quiet about what had happened? Let me just apologize and say I'm sorry for the formatting of the story. I'm a terrible writer and I am not a storyteller, so I apologize in advance. But these creatures that I saw were unlike anything I've ever seen. They really reminded me if you crossed a tarantula with a human. I mean, these were gross. They made this hissing, clicking noise too. I know it sounds phony through email, but it's really hard for me to convey emotion properly, at least through written communication. With all the information coming out anymore about missing hikers and seeing strange figures and shapes in the woods, and all the other bizarre happenings of 2020, I figured. Hey, maybe now is an okay time to be open about my experiences and hopefully not experience backlash. As a Forest Service employee, I had spent countless hours in the wilderness. Anyhow, this happened at Music Creek, southeast of Estacada, Oregon. It was late, and darkness had settled over the landscape like a heavy shroud. I was driving along the winding road, my headlights cutting through the gloom, casting and glow on the surrounding trees. The stillness of the night was broken only by the hum of my engine. And then it happened. In the fleeting moment that my headlights illuminated the road ahead, I saw it a massive figure darting across the asphalt. Its size alone was enough to send chills down my spine. Towering at a staggering seven to eight feet tall, it was a dark silhouette against the night, moving with an astonishing speed down the slope. 
My heart raced and a surge of adrenaline flooded my veins. What had I just seen? Could it be possible? In that split second, my mind grappled with the unimaginable. Was this a Bigfoot? The stories that had circulated throughout the region suddenly took on a new meaning. I had always regarded them as mere folklore, stories passed down through generations. But now, confronted with this inexplicable sight, I couldn't deny the possibility that these held some grain of truth. I brought my car to a screeching halt, my hands gripping the steering wheel tightly. My gaze remained fixed on the spot where the creature had disappeared into the darkness. Fear mingled with curiosity, and a wave of trepidation washed over me. Should I investigate further? Should I pursue this enigma that had crossed my path? Part of me longed for answers, a desire to unravel the mysteries that lay hidden within the depths of these woods. But another part, a voice of caution, urged me to retreat. The unknown can be a dangerous realm, and venturing further into its clutches might invite consequences beyond my comprehension. Reluctantly, I made the decision to drive away, leaving the shadowy figure behind. I have kept this inside of me for over 55 years, and I think it's time that I disclose the event, which took place in 1965. My brother, who I will refer to as Sam, and I witnessed aliens abducting two young girls who lived in the trailer next door. We never told a soul about this encounter, and now that he has passed, I am the only person left to recount the events of that fateful night, which changed our lives forever. We were living near Bossier City, Louisiana, as our father was deep underground in the Air Force missile silos, and he worked for days at a time in these bunkers. He had just come home on a three-day leave, and we were so happy to be able to spend time with him. Sam and I played rough with our dad all day, and we were bushed come bedtime. I slept in the upper bunk and my brother in the lower. Suddenly, around 3 or 4 a.m., we were both awakened by a low thundering sound and the most brilliantly colored light display just outside our window at the foot of our bunk bed. I moved to the window and looked down to see Sam looking out as well. We both watched a flying saucer land in the field, close to our neighbor's trailer. Our family was very close to these neighbors, and the two young girls living there were friends to my brother and me. I can't recall their names, but they were approximately seven and ten years old. We debated about waking our parents, but we were so frightened and thought if we woke them, they start turning on outside lights or walk outside with weapons. There would be bloodshed and sheer panic in the trailer park. So we sat very quietly and simply observed. This flying saucer was about 50 feet in diameter and had multicolored lights around the perimeter. Everything beneath the craft was distorted and wavy as it was gently settling down in the dirt field. There were four metal legs that slid down from the craft with round pads on each. All of the lights on the craft went out within about 30 seconds after it landed. But a light blue glow started to envelop the craft and it made the area around it glow as well. Then, a ramp slid down from the craft, and a door opened up, and we could partially see inside the ship. There were dull red and orange lights on the walls, and an electrical crackling sound emanating from the interior. Then the interior lights went out, and the weird sound stopped. Suddenly, a figure started to walk down the ramp and was followed by another. Now, Sam and I were never allowed to watch any science fiction shows or movies with aliens or spaceships, I had never even seen a drawing or picture of a saucer before this. We were allowed to watch cartoons like Scooby-Doo and Bugs Bunny, along with shows like The Wonderful World of Disney and Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. So this was truly an adventurous night for us, and definitely something very new. The first two beings walking down the ramp made their way into the light of our neighbor's yard. There was a light on the back of their trailer and their porch, when they got closer to the brighter light on their porch, we could see they were dressed in the same color suits. But the weird thing was that their skin appeared to be the same color as well. They looked human in shape and size, but moved in a way that made them function more like robots. Every movement was very smooth and effortless, 
as though they were moving about in the water. They now remind me of the Blue Man Group from Vegas, because they were completely blue all over. Then, another two beings exited the craft and they were green. Another two that were red, until there were six of them in all. They walked in line up to the door of the trailer. They all passed right through the door without opening it. That scared the heck out of us, more so than the landing of the craft. We were asking each other, did you see that? What are they going to do with our friends? Minutes later, they passed through the door again and they were leading the two girls all the way back to their ship. The girls appeared as though they were sleepwalking and even had their eyes closed. They walked just fine without any help from these strange beings. Now, if you are wondering, yes, the girls passed right through the door without it being opened too. About five minutes later, they exited the ship and lead the girls back into the trailer. But when the beings passed through the door for the last time as they were coming out, they all crouched down slightly, turned, and looked directly at our window. Each one did this in succession, and they smiled and waved at us. Now, at this point, my brother and I were in complete shock. We were also completely mesmerized. I looked at Sam, and he looked at me, but we were unable to say a word. They entered the ship, and as the last one went inside, the interior lights returned. The strange noise started up again, and the door closed. The ramp slid back up inside the craft, and as it slowly lifted off the ground, the four legs retracted up as well. The amazingly colorful lights came back on around the perimeter of the ship, and it slowly lifted skyward, until it was about 25 feet in the air. Then it shot straight up and out of sight in less than a second. The last being standing at the door of the ship waved at Sam and me before it closed. I thought I should point that out as well, because that is the lasting image that burned into my memory ever since that strange night. My brother and I talked about that night possibly thousands of times before he passed away in 2009, but we never discussed it with anyone else, ever. We tried so hard to see if there was anything different about our neighbor's daughters after that night. But we didn't notice anything unusual. That event troubles me to this day, more so than any other event. I have often wondered if Sam and I were the actual abductees and the memory of the girl's abduction was planted. But in any case, two or possibly even four people were contacted abducted that night. Of that I am sure. I now need to find answers to this event somehow, even if it means going to a qualified hypnotist experienced in the abduction phenomena. I have to know exactly what happened in 1965. I wonder if those two young girls are now going through abduction therapy as adults. So many unanswered questions, and I think about that night every single day of my life. I need to get this monkey off of my back somehow. And this helps to finally tell the world about that strange night. I was walking on the hill with my two Labradors when out of nowhere they went into a frenzy. They ran in circles, growling and snapping at the air, until they eventually collapsed to the ground, tails tucked beneath them. Bewildered, I scanned the surroundings and spotted a huge creature at a distance to the side. It appeared translucent, as I could see the grass of the hill through its body, but it was covered in long, charcoal-colored hair. Oddly, it left no trace on the grass. The creature had elongated, glowing red slits for eyes, nose like holes, thick lips, and stood well over ten feet tall on two legs. Filled with terror, I began to pray, and after a few moments, the creature slowly faded out of sight. I hastily left the hill with my two dogs whimpering close behind me. I was asleep on the couch at my girlfriend's house, surrounded by pitch-black darkness. Suddenly, a dark figure materialized in the hallway. It had a human-like shape and appeared even darker than the surrounding darkness. The figure's head reached the ceiling, slightly bending forward as if constrained by the low height. I lay there, struggling to comprehend what my eyes were witnessing. Attempts to speak proved futile as no words emerged from my mouth. Even my attempts to yell resulted in nothing more than a whisper. 
The room grew colder as the figure glided forward with an eerie grace. I desperately tried to move, but my body refused to obey, except for an involuntary tremble. The silhouette entered the living room, navigating the walls while keeping its head turned towards me. I followed its movements, transfixed, as it passed behind the stove and through the stovepipe as if nothing obstructed its path. The dark figure drew nearer and nearer to the couch where I lay, now positioned right beside it. Staring at the figure, an overwhelming sense of pure evil engulfed me. My mind went numb and tears welled up in my eyes. Gradually, laughter echoed in the distance, a malevolent, otherworldly laughter. It grew louder, resembling a gathering of people engaged in a chaotic party with multiple conversations overlapping. Amidst the laughter, I heard a high-pitched woman's voice say, We scared him to death. In that moment, my mind turned to prayer. Summoning all my strength, I cried out, God, help me. Miraculously, the dark apparition began to fade until it vanished completely from my sight. The chilling coldness in the room was replaced by the comforting warmth radiating from the stove. It was late night in late October, early November of 1975. I was a 10-year-old child. At that time, I was going through a late bed-wetting phase and remember I was determined to end that embarrassment. I awoke for the second or third night in time to relieve myself and remember being happy and proud that I caught it in time again. As my eyes creaked open slightly, I saw movement in the room, and at least what I thought were African-American kids in my room moving around. I remember thinking that the only thing they could steal of any value was my prized small black and white TV that was on my dresser next to my bed. As you can imagine, at this time my heart was pounding through my chest and just wanted them to take the TV and leave. I creaked my eyes open ever so slightly as not to be noticed and was shocked to realize that they weren't afros which were common at that time, but were whole heads. I can't really express my thoughts of that instant realization when I saw who was really in the room at that time other than how in a nanosecond I went from there's no such things as aliens to oh, my god they're real to what do they want. At that time, there was no such things as greys or anything similar to what has been so defined into pop culture today. Being late October, early November, there was a harvest moon, and I had a fairly large picture window in my room, which lead to some fair amount of ambient room lighting which I shared with my five-year-old brother who slept in an adjacent bed next to mine. During this event, I was creaking my eyes open enough as not to be noticed laying on my back when I woke up and my bed covers were at my waist. All I wanted was to get my bed cover up to my head, so I was ever so slowly and methodically creeping them up during this entire event. As not to be noticed, there was a larger one that stood against the wall directly across from the foot of my bed that just stared at me. There was another knelt down on the opposite side of my brother's bed and what I thought at the time was that he was doing something to his arm. I my head at the time my mind was reeling. My parents' room was directly behind me, and if I screamed my father would come running in. I remember thinking that the one next to my brother I was taller than, and equated him to being in my grade remember I was 10. So if he came over to me my big plan was to jump up and dive on him and scream for my dad. The one against the wall just standing there I remember as being a grade or two older than me and he would probably do something before my dad to get in. I remember thinking I could end the whole debate that are we alone in the universe, and the weight of that thought being succumbed to he's killing my brother, and not being able to muster the internal strength to do something. My next thought was that if he comes over to me, he can't put a needle in me, so I started to tear up, and that diffused my sight to what was happening in the room. Then the one that was knelt next to my brother got up and came at me, pure horror as my eyes were teared, and he rounded my brother's bed and in one motion knelt down on his right knee, and in one motion opened his toolkit and kind of flipped and twisted his left wrist and reached in. At that very moment I couldn't hold it anymore and thought needle, and I made an audible pre-cry wail. The face that the creature made still haunts me today. Honesty. It's the same face people make when they make a surprise mistake, a eek, I did something embarrassing facial expression. 
His mouth was just a slit, so when he made that expression, his face rippled and wrinkled like an old man. Immediately, whatever he was taking out of his box, which was a really weird shape, then but not now, it was hexagonal with a diagonal opening and Handel put it back and got up, and they marched out. Again, another part of this is memory that has crept me out is how they moved like the military and moved, or better said, marched out of my room. I was shocked and with unreal timing as I looked down the hallway when they passed my parents' room two more came out and filed in line with such precision and marched down the hall and all turned down the stairs out of my sight. Again I must stress the timing was if they were one. Needless to say I didn't sleep the rest of the night. My younger brother was fine in the morning and no one in my family knew anything of the night's event. I lived near a large metropolitan area at the time and our house was the only house surrounded by 260 acres of woods. I only told a handful of people since then and find it very difficult and seriously doubt many of these accounts I read of abductions myself. Ironic, isn't it? They were very, very real, and I wish I dreamed it, but I didn't. My impression then and my life of the events of that night is that these beings are cold and indifferent to us. Basically, they are not our enemies, but most certainly aren't our friends. There might be a very good reason our government has kept this secret for so long. Being that I live on the coast of them's hate all you want, but just know that south of I-10 is nothing like the typical stereotype, which that in itself is far off as well. I have been on and around the water my entire life. I have many stories of crazy things and experiences happening while being on the water such as dealing with bad weather, lightning storms, water spouts, high seas, etc. Which can be awesomely frightening, but the craziest things I have seen have happened while running working on fishing charter boats. The one that always sticks with me, and I would also say the most eye-opening occurred back in 2010 when the Deepwater Horizon oil rig blew and began spewing oil into the Gulf of Mexico. BP, after realizing to a certain extent how vast the spill was, began a program that allowed owners of boats to register and participate in the cleanup of the coastline. Side note, those that were lucky enough to be accepted into the program sometimes took advantage of an awesome opportunity to do something good for the environment and made some serious money from it, while at the same time preventing others from getting into the program who would have actually helped that somewhat mentioned later but overall is a story for another discussion. So being that the water that I had basically grown up on was being destroyed, I couldn't just sit back and not do anything. I went and got HAZMAT certified for this particular instance among other certifications, and through certain contacts, I first started working on a 127 feet charter boat. This boat normally will go out to the Chandelier Islands located off the coast of Louisiana for several days nights and drop skiffs in the water where clients were guided around the islands to fish. Also, I would suggest if anyone has the opportunity to go out to these islands, do it. It's incredible there, and the fishing is always on point. Back to story. I was working on this boat for about two weeks, and then was transferred to an offshore division that consisted of about 10-15 boats. These boats, by the way, were strictly personal fishing and commercial charter boats, with the largest being 57 feet, and an average price of around $100,000, and a couple worth well over a one million conservatively. Our job was to leave at 6 a.m. and go out and look for oil or any marine life, etc. that may have been impacted by the spill. If we found oil crude, oil slicks, or anything else out of place or not normal, we'd log it, take pictures, and report it. For about a month, we were only finding slicks. One day, we went out about 120 miles, and I'll never forget the sights or smells that day. The crude, we called it mud because that is exactly what it looked like was everywhere and ridiculously thick on average six in, and in some places up to one FT. It was like a super thick putty, and to be honest is actually really hard to describe. To put this into perspective though, if you have ever been mud riding or seen a truck get stuck in mud, that's exactly what it was like to these boats, but out on the water and a lot worse. This overtime destroyed the boat's hulls among other things causing significant damage. We were the first group to find the crude and report it coming in that close to shore. 
Also during this time, we found a life jacket belonging to one of the guys who actually worked on the oil rig. Words honestly cannot describe what that was like. It was a very surreal moment to say the least. So we eventually get back to shore, and that's when things start to change. The operation had now shifted to, how the hell are we going to clean this up? And what the hell are we going to do with it? It wasn't until this point when we all realized how serious this was, not only for the coastline, but for the environment as a whole. The next morning at the dock, we noticed that pallets of skimmers and absorbent boom had been dropped off. We were to use the skimmers to round up as much crude as we could, tie off the skimmers into a circle, and place the boom together with the crude inside. That would then be brought to decon stations by another division who was assigned that job these were the shrimp boats. Reminder, our job originally was to just spot, find, take pictures, and report. Not necessarily handle the oil if all possible. To sum up how that operation went, it was complete shit, and that's being nice. It got to the point where instead of myself being the only one who could technically handle the crude on my boat, Everyone else working the boats eventually ended up in type suits handling this foreign-ass toxic substance in 100-plus degree temperatures for 12-plus hours a day. Side note, each boat had to have at least one hazmat-certified person on board at all times who was supposed to be the only person handling the crude. Also, only four people were allowed to work on each boat in our division. We also ended up getting stranded twice by the shrimpers who decided to call it day at lunchtime, leaving us with no way to move the crude, while also not allowing us to leave because we couldn't just leave the rounded up crude unattended. Yay. Absolutely miserable. Nobody could ever have imagined what we were getting into. And along with that, BP themselves had no idea what they were getting into and their claims of being prepared. And we're on top of this with all available resources blah blah blah, was completely overshadowed by the fact that they truly did not know how to run and contain an operation of this size and magnitude, and that was seen day in and day out. This became a day-to-day -day challenge up until the point when my shady-ass boss got caught being greedy charging BP for every miscellaneous thing he bought which caused all his boats to be shut down. His first check was said to be upwards of $450,000, and that's rounding it off. During this time, both the employers, the boat owners especially, and employees were making some serious money. What ruined it were the greedy bastards who just couldn't get enough. This has turn caused less boats that were actually doing it for the right reasons from being able to make a change out on the water. In total, we worked a little over three months, going out every day and seeing schools of dead fish, dead sea turtles, and the water that you grew up on literally turned into a mud pit as that's exactly what it was, was disheartening to say the least. Though all that happened and we dealt with so much, there was one time where we saw that what we were doing might have been helping just a little bit. On one of our last trips, we were about 20 or so miles out past the barrier islands when we could see from a distance what looked like the water boiling and had a red, orange, and yellow color to it. When we got close, we realized it was a school of thousands of redfish and jack crevel that stretched as far as we could see and was about 100 or so yards wide. Being in the middle of that, surrounded by these fish, just cannot be described with words. It was incredible, and that was the one moment that gave us hope that what we were doing was not a waste and that we were in fact doing something worthwhile. Still to this day, it is the most incredible thing I have seen on the water aside from the oil spill itself. Lastly, just to throw this out there, there is still tons of oil out in the Gulf regardless of what people say. It's just buried and on the seafloor due to the so-called dispersants that BP claimed would break the oil up. It still can be found on the islands, beaches, and marshes. The marine life is just now getting back to normal again in the past two years and it's only going to get better as long as some shit like this don't happen again. There is so much more that I could talk about from this time. Ranging from the oil itself to the things BP supposedly did and did not do. That's all for another day though. Again, sorry for the long post, but this one experience is always the one I come back to when asked about things I have seen on the water, and with this thread I felt it should be mentioned. 
Hunter slash Mountaineer here. It was a chilly December morning. I hiked in pre-dawn, taking about an hour and a half to go three miles off the beaten trails. Got to my nest about half an hour before sunrise and started to settle in. The wind kicked up and a fog rolled in that was thicker than milk. Within a few minutes, my visibility was five. I'm sitting tight, huddled up against the freezing wind when I start to hear twigs snapping close to me. For no apparent reason, what is normally a rapturous sound indicative of an imminently successful hunt sent a frosty chill down my spine. I chambered around in my lever action 30-30 as quietly as I could and lay flat on my back tucked against a fallen tree. The rustling was moving closer through the fog, but I couldn't see anything. The sun was starting to peak over the mountains to my east and visibility was starting to increase. The rustling of twigs and leaves was sporadic, sometimes directly in front of me, sometimes behind or beside me. I remember laying there, rifle across my chest, thinking to myself how silly it was to react like such a coward. I rationed with myself that bears and mountain lions are a rarity where I was, and I had likely stumbled into a herd of white tail that had bedded down. I decided to sit up. The rustling stopped immediately. As it was fully dawn by now, I was looking through the fog for the outline of my prey, which I had assured myself was literally all around me. It wasn't. Seemingly, nothing was. By now, the fog had faded away, and it was apparent to me that I was alone in those woods. I hunted all that day without seeing so much as a squirrel. Around three in the afternoon, after fighting the wind and an abnormally cold day, and not wanting to hike out by flashlight, I decided it was time to start back to the truck. Walking out of those woods was the most uneasy I have ever felt. Lawfully, once you make it back to the trail, you're supposed to clear the chamber of your rifle. Not that day. What is normally a stroll through the woods, I undertook with the seriousness of an animal being stalked. I would walk, then stop and listen. I never heard or saw anything during my retreat, but I could feel eyes on me. I was about 100 feet away from my truck when I rounded the last corner and saw, hanging at eye level from a tree by a noose, a stuffed bear in a blaze orange jacket. I'm a giant, broad-shouldered outdoorsman, but that one shook me something fierce. Well, I'm a trucker and a lot of my routes take me through Indian reservations. I won't sleep on a reservation unless it's a truck stop anymore because of this. Short story, but I was about 30 miles east of Tuba City and was shut down for the night at some potent gas station in the middle of nowhere. I had just started to get into my book when all of a sudden I hear what sounds like people hitting the outside of my truck with open hands everywhere. It's on my roof 13 foot 5 inches about my walls, the back of the sleeper, sides of my sleeper. I grabbed my Bowie knife and bolted out my door ready to scare some kids. There was nothing. The ground was dirt and a little wet, but when I looked at the ground, there were no footprints. My truck was dusty, but there were no handprints. That was one of the scariest things that's happened to me on the road. So like I said, if I'm on a res, unless there's a truck stop, I will not shut down. I was stationed at Fort Irwin National Training Center, an army post not very far from Death Valley in the Mojave Desert. It was a pretty big post with family housing and such, so not quite secluded. I was Air Force attached to a direct air support unit at Fort Irwin. Our maintenance compound was on the edge of the post. Our actual shop was fairly secluded. I had stayed late at work one winter night. When I shut down the shop, I turned off all the lights and stepped outside. There was a winter overcast thing going on, with so much cloud cover sitting so low that it was almost a fog. No moon, no starlight. And since there were no exterior lights in this area, it was extremely dark. It was so dark that I had to sort of feel my way to the car. I had to feel the door to find the keyhole for my key. This was back in the early 90s, and I had an older car without the automatic door lock. Of course, it didn't help that I had stepped out from a brighter area into the night, so my eyes hadn't adjusted yet. 
I just didn't think it was a big deal as soon as I got into the car, started it, and turned on my lights, everything would be fine. So I got into the car, shut the door, put on my seatbelt, and started it up. I then turned on my lights. There in front of the car, sitting peacefully, alertly watching me, was a coyote. Looking around, I see another three or four coyotes staring at me, lounging around like they were in their living room. I had walked right between two of them to get to my car. I jumped. I may have squeaked a little grunted and manly concern out of surprise. I stared at them. They all stared at me in a sort of bored interest. Then I put the car into gear and went home. From then on, I brought a flashlight to work, just in case. As a retired police officer, aged 58, I returned home with my wife on April 18, 1996, in Wanneran, Queensland. Stepping into our house, a peculiar smell of sulfur filled the air, catching my attention. Intrigued, I began investigating, but found nothing visibly out of the ordinary. Meanwhile, my wife proceeded to the main bedroom, turning on the lights in the hallway and the bedroom itself. She then made her way back towards the living room at the other end of the house. Curiosity getting the better of me, I followed along the hallway, approaching the spot where Jenny, my wife, had just passed. Suddenly, I walked into an area enveloped in an intense coldness. As I reached out to touch it, a strong electrical current surged through me, causing me to stumble backward in shock. Overwhelmed by a sense of revulsion and fear, I quickly retreated to the entrance of the hallway, attempting to regain my composure. Jenny, curious about my experience, ventured along the hallway herself and encountered a similar phenomenon. Undeterred, I gathered my courage and made another attempt to walk down the hall, only to be met with yet another jolt of electrical discharge. Jenny and I discussed the situation at length, repeatedly trying to pass through the area, but encountering the same electrical discharge each time. Throughout this ordeal, a presence seemed to linger at the southern end of the hallway. Our toy poodle sensed that something was amiss, and I noticed that when I gazed down the hall, the guanine at the back of my eyes reflected a strange bright orange color instead of the usual vibrant green. The presence of this entity emitted a sensation similar to static electricity, causing goosebumps to erupt on our skin. The area where the entity resided was exceedingly cold and discomforting. Direct contact with it drained us of energy momentarily and made normal breathing difficult. Later that evening, at around 8.30 p.m., our son Adrian and his partner Petra arrived. Eager to investigate, Adrian entered the hallway and experienced the same electrifying discharge. By that time, the entity had moved approximately 8 meters, now positioned at the northern end of the hall. Petra, who was heavily pregnant, encountered the entity, feeling as though she had been brushed or lightly struck, but thankfully unharmed. As time passed, all four of us had multiple direct encounters with the entity, which seemed to move with purpose throughout our house. Petra's encounters were less intense compared to the experiences of the other witnesses. At 9.30 p.m., the entity forcefully ejected Adrian from a chair. Jenny had a severe accidental direct contact with it, momentarily becoming trapped within its grasp. She displayed visible signs of distress, struggling to breathe, an elevated pulse rate, weakness, and disorientation. We checked the surroundings of the house but found nothing unusual except for a column of warm air at the southern end. Throughout this period, no discernible traffic or external sounds could be heard within or around the house. Adrian later had another intense encounter with the entity, after which he and Petra decided to return to their own home. Around midnight, we witnessed a ball of light energy pass across the screen of our television set. An independent witness confirmed seeing a massive orange light suspended above our house at precisely 12.20 a.m. A neighbor reported that her house trembled and shook during that time, while telemetry from the water storage reservoir across the road inexplicably crashed and then restored itself. We also heard loud clicking sounds in groups of three, repeatedly resonating throughout the house. In the days that followed, some of us developed symptoms resembling radiation sickness, including severe headaches, 
flu-like symptoms, sore eyes, and joint pain. Three of us experienced chronic and permanent tinnitus. Furthermore, I noticed a brown pigmented stain on both of my legs and a circular mark on the top of my left foot. Several rocks in our garden showed signs of energy impact, with one even exploding into a fine powder. A candle had melted selectively, separating the steric acid component and crystallizing it. Moss on the concrete path exhibited burn marks, and two small sections of the path appeared to have melted or glazed. Additionally, two of the witnesses, including myself, began developing substantial psychic abilities. The events that unfolded within our home during that time left us bewildered and forever changed, haunted by the mysteries of that night. Solo distance cycling through rural Minnesota a few years ago, probably 40 miles from anything except cows and corn. Midday, I stop off in an old family cemetery plot in the middle of nowhere to drink Gatorade and smoke a bowl. Sitting stoned in the shade and taking a moment to relax, I distinctly smell cigarette smoke. I don't smoke tobacco. I am alone to the horizon in every direction and I turn and around, and there is a full cigarette smoking in the overgrown grass right behind me. I know deep down there was probably a rational explanation, but I choose to believe that some lonely old farmer ghost just wanted to chill in the shade and have a smoke with someone. I've spent the last year traveling and working around the outback. One night in far western Queensland, I was driving between two towns about 360 kilometers between the two and being Australia, there is sweet F all in between when I spotted a headlight coming the other direction. As I got closer, it appeared to be only a single headlight, so I assumed it was a motorbike, and then I drove underneath it. I nearly shat myself, I was that startled. I jumped on the brakes and swung around, got out of the car about 100 meters down the road and walked towards it. This pulsating light about 20 feet above the ground and about 30 centimeters in radius. Being probably the only human being for 50 kilometers in the middle of the desert at 11.30 at night, I will tell you it freaked me the F out. I recounted the events to a bunch of locals the next day, and they said it was a known phenomenon known as the Min Min. And as far as I'm aware, there is no real scientific explanation. Ever since then, oncoming cars became a lot more interesting. A friend of mine is a diver and told me of a hideous moment he had once while alone in the darkness. He was employed to collect sponges around a reef at night somewhere in Australia. Him and his friend would set off in opposite directions around the reef and meet in the middle. One night he was making his way round when his torch started to stop working. He proceeded to start banging the torch on his hand to try and stir new life into the batteries, which was making the torch flicker on and off. Eventually the torch turned on for a brief moment, just long enough for him to see a large shark staring at him from a few feet away. Then the torch switched off again, leaving him in pitch black. I used to hunt in a WMA and had a trail that was the best for any hunting. It was my go-to. Deer, turkey, hog, you name it. One afternoon during deer season, I decided to go further down the trail than I normally do. As I get further down, I start to feel like I'm being followed. I chalk it up to just being alone in the woods and letting my mind play tricks on me. Finally, I find the spot I want to hook my climber to. So I make my way through some pretty thick brush and get to the tree. I hook up and climb and get comfortable. About 15 minutes later, I hear whispering. It's so faint I can't make out what is being said. Then I hear footsteps so I get as still as I can be. When I hunt in a climber, I like to camo the F up so I'm covered from head to toe. Then I start to hear the voices getting closer and I can make out what's being said. It's toe guys talking and saying, did you see where he went? And then another voice responds and says, just keep looking and be ready. They finally come into my field of vision and it's actually a group of six guys, all armed but dressed in regular clothes, clearly not out to hunting.
Luckily, they have no idea I'm in a climber and they aren't looking in the trees. They don't say anything else but continue down the trail looking around and pointing their guns like they're ready to shoot the first thing they see. I don't know what their plan was, but I got the F out of there before I could find out. And I started hunting in a different part of that WMA after that. Hello, my name is Ashkiai, and I'm a Native American who has taken over Park Ranger for my father who passed away from cancer. Our family has lived in this region of Tennessee for generations. Hell, it was my great ex-4 granddad who was the Park Ranger here in the first place. So getting the job was easy for his descendants. When I was little, my great granddad used to tell me bedtime stories of how him and his father used to go out into the forest and hunt down creatures not of this earth. I thought it nothing but tall tales and I just wrote them off. It wasn't until I was 17 when I first saw something truly unexplainable. It was the middle of the night I had woken up to a loud crashing in the woods next to our house. I looked out my window to see something terrifying. What I saw shook my perception on reality. It appeared to be a gorilla, but this thing was about 10 feet tall and had to weigh about 450 pounds. It had monstrous hands and was covered head to toe in black matted hair. But the most shocking thing was it was walking on two feet. Behind it, it dragged a gigantic brown bear. This bear had to been beaten and bloody as if the thing beat it with its bare hands and dragged it as if it was a rag doll through the edge of the forest. Before it went deeper into the forest, it looked directly at me with its amber glowing eyes and in the moonlight, I could tell that its teeth were sharp and jagged. I quickly ducked under my window seal, but I knew it had saw me. I didn't sleep that night. I stayed up all night watching my window just to make sure it didn't come back to get me. I didn't tell anybody what I saw due to me, thinking it being nothing more than a dream the next morning. But that changed when I overheard a conversation between my great-granddad and granddad saying that they found a skull and a monster of skeleton of a giant bear 23 miles into the woods. That was two years ago, I am 19, and I have taken up the job as a park ranger. Ever since I took the job at 18, strange things have happened, for instance, last night. I went out for expedition into the forest just to look around the area. I did this at a bad time because before I knew it, it was pitch black outside. I was 10 miles into the woods when I noticed glowing red orbs watching me from the trees. I quickly took out my rifle and took cover behind some fallen lumber when I heard a distinct humming noise that was when the glowing red robs multiplied into six. Jobbins, my father, used to tell me stories of these creatures. They are as peaceful as it can be. They are almost kind, in fact. The humming noise was a song. I quickly plugged my ears because the song the sing will enable you to enter sleep, or if you're already sleeping, you'll be unable to wake up. My father theorized that the frequency they give off lock your brain's state of awake to avoid anyone from following this fate. I lit a stick and waved it around in the air to make them know that their presence was not needed here, and so they scattered glowing quite beautifully in the starry night. The other reason why I had to it was because not only could they put you in a coma, but other, let's say, creatures of this region find the jobbins very delicious. And wouldn't you know it, as soon as I was about to leave cover, there was a rumbling coming from four miles into the woods. I put on my night vision goggles and spotted a bulldog bear, Aka, the thought-to-be extinct short-faced bear. The short-faced bear was the largest and most powerful land carnivore in North America during the Ice Age. This thing must have weighed about 1, 540 pounds and stood about 10 feet on 2 feet. It sported a deep red claw mark on its face and had teeth the size of steak knives and fur as dark as the night sky. I was in deep shit here. This thing could run circles around any horse I had no chance of escaping, or so I thought. Slowly lumbering toward the bear was a monster of a Bigfoot. This thing was about 8 feet tall, weighed could have weighed about 800 pounds. And if you want to know about Bigfoots, know this and remember it well, they are very territorial. What happened next was a scene right out of a King Kong movie. The Bigfoot, while beating its chest, let out a howl of intimidation, and the bear stood on two feet and roared a roar that shook the forest and silenced any crickets or insects singing a nightly song. They charged at each other, but before I could see anything else, I booked it. 
I took one look back and saw the Bigfoot toss the monster of the bear through four trees that only made me run faster. I made it back to my cabin at five. I stayed up that whole morning sitting on my couch with my shotgun and pistol loaded in my hand and pointing at the door in case the victor of that match was looking for a new opponent. The next day was when I got the radio call about the missing campers and hikers that have gone missing in my area of the woods. I packed my bags for a long tip into the wilderness, expecting to find what was behind occurrence of hikers and campers not coming back. I planned to hike 30 miles into the forest on the first 10 miles I started to find backpacks ripped to shreds and tents reduced to nothing but cloth. I took out my pistol and started to walk further into the forest keeping my head on a swivel. 15 miles in I started to find body parts arms and legs littered the trails but one blood trail stood out to me. I followed it about three miles into the woods and found a horrible sight. It was a man he had been skinned alive and his eye were missing from what I could tell his legs had been broken, and he had been crucified on a makeshift cross. He had been cut in the corners of his mouth to display a sadistic smile, and he head had been held up by some sting to make it look at if he were looking at me. I slowly walked away from the man not wanting to get any closer the thing that bothers me the most was that every time I turned my back to him, I would hear a twisted child's giggle coming from the corpse. I walked further into the woods and decided to make a makeshift camp in a cave close by a water source, so I could bath and possibly fish for more food. After two hours of fishing I had caught some meaty catches and prepared them and cooked them on the roaring flame of my campfire. But even though I was concentrating on not burning the fish I could tell that I was being watched, I looked up from the flame and saw a man, but it wasn't an ordinary man. He would be a man at first glance, but as I studied him more I noticed his twisted features. He was tall and had long hair past his shoulders, his eyes glowed a bright yellow and his hands were massive with untrimmed nails. He smiled at me and his teeth were sharp and yellow as a stick of butter he called to me. A little lost, aren't ya? Why don't you put out that campfire so I can help ya find your way out? Is a raspy cigarette smoker voice. His voice was deep, and I felt it in my bowels. I liked him in the eyes and threw down a log on the fire, which made it roar and grow bigger, and the creature let out a cry and stumbled back. Thank God I took the fish off, or it would have been burned, I thought. Why don't you just come and sit at the campfire with me? I said as I patted on the empty place on the log next time me while sporting a grin. You're a cool for coming out here this deep into the forest alone, and I'll make you realize that sooner or later. The creature said in voice full of hate, and then he left walking with an unnatural gait into the forest. I stayed awake all night keeping the fire alive and my shotgun loaded in my lap. I knew that if it had gone out I wouldn't be making it the next morning. When sunset came I went into my tent and fell asleep, keeping an ear out for any noises. There have been stories of wild men roaming deep in the forest, but to meet one is a whole different feeling of fear. I woke up at 12 p.m. and continued hiking at mile 20 I had found an abandoned cabin. Nothing seemed to be wrong with it, and when I went inside of it, it appeared to be normal and untouched besides being covered in cobwebs, so I made base here. It was a small cabin, just one bed and one bathroom and a half kitchen. I sat at the table and took out a field guide to the area and started to read up on the other creatures that could be lurking around here. It was night when I finished and heard a weird noise outside of the window, thank God. I had turned the lights off before it got to dark. Because right outside my window, I saw an old man wandering the forest. I thought it to be strange that anyone besides me to be this deep out here. I wanted to open the door and offer to help. But then noticed this was a very tall old man and was wearing the skin of a mountain lion on his back and was dragging a human body behind him. He was waking towards the cabin's shit. I thought I hid under the couch with my pistol in hand and threw my stuff in the bathroom and closed the door. He opened the door and slammed it shut. He was sniffing the air like a dog who smells food. He know I'm here, I thought, but then he growled and just walked toward the table dragging the mangled human body behind him. I wanted to let out a breathe of relief, but I knew that if I did he'd find me. He then threw the corpse on the table I was reading at, and I started to hear sounds of gnawing, ripping and tearing. From what I could see he was eating the human body, 
and when he was done, he stood in the middle of the cabin and started breathing heavy. He fell on his knees and started shifting into a monster of a mountain lion. His once human hands turned into gigantic, terrible paws with claws that could cut through diamond. His fur was jet black with what appeared to be red stripes on the ankles of his massive mountain lion legs. He cracked the wood floor of the cabin as he walked, and when he roared he shattered every window in the cabin he ran out the door shattering it into pieces and talking off into a tree deep in the woods. That was four hours ago, and ever since then I've been sitting on this couch in shock, every once in a while looking at the poor camper's body, his poor mangled body, the skinwalker had eaten every organ in it, a left it a husk. I know what must be done, but the question is do I have the guts to do it? Right now I've made a plan to take the skinwalker out, but I don't know if I could possibly defeat something so evil and ancient. The stories that my family have told me of skinwalkers have made them seem like an unstoppable force of the evils of this world, but there is a way to kill it. When the sun was in the middle of the sky, I went to go find some wolfsbane. I then liquefied it to saturate my bullets in and sharpened, and then coated my machete in it. I thank God my father for only using silver rounds and a silver machete for when he was in charge, but the cost must have been very expensive. I got my pistol and shotgun at the ready, and I am hiding under the bed of the cabin everything's in place. I don't know if I'll make it, but just in case I don't I'm gonna post this now, and it's good thing I'm posting this now too I just heard the silver bear trap coated in wolfsbane. I placed in the living room go off and a roar of a creature that's not too happy that someone has found its lair. Part 2 Hello it's me again Ashkei, now I bet you wondering how the hell did I make it out alive. Well, I'll tell you, after the skinwalker had fallen for the silver bear trap, I busted out from my hiding place and loaded it with the special bullets I made. But it still had fight in it. It grabbed me and threw me through a window. I wrapped around a tree. I got my arm impaled on a sharp brack, but I could tell that took all of its strength. Silver and wolfsbane are excellent for fighting monsters such as these. It drains their stamina and if they have a healing factor, it's not longer able to use it. He then rushed me, and with the branch I took out of my arm, I swung it, and it connected with its chin, dazing it. After I got up, I saw the skinwalker sluggishly crawling into the forest. I limped over and out a bullet right into its brain, but I knew that wouldn't be a definite way to kill it. I had to take out the heart and burn it on a fire or else. It would come back for round two after I did that it turned to dust and blew away into the night. After that I exhaled deeply and limped back to the cabin closed and locked the door and passed out on the couch. I woke up nine hours later tended to my wounds and headed back to my main base, noting that this cabin could be of use in the future. About ten miles into my walk I was approached by hiker we exchanged greetings, had a conversation and I even decided to let him walk with me his name was back. After ten minutes of walking his offered me some food it looked delicious, almost too delicious I looked at it, and looked at him, and he was grinning I then took out some silver powered and blew it in his face. It relived his true form of Bakwa. Bakwa's offers ghost food out of cockle shells to humans stranded in the woods, if they accept and eat the offered food, then they too become a ghostly being like Bakwa's. I pointed my pistol at the monster who took the form of a tall old man and threatened that if I ever saw him again he would die and he wouldn't have to be worried about offering food anymore. He took off deep into the woods to never to be seen by me again and I kept walking finally reaching my cabin and retiring to my bed to rest. The next morning I got a call from an unknown radio signal about a strange sighting about a man wearing a moose skull as a mask. I took it to be a tweaker who found a dead moose and head out to take care of it. The location the man was sighted was in an unmapped region of the woods, so I thought it odd that he had gotten that far. As soon as I got there I found a hiding place behind a log and waited for him to come. About 10 p.m. the man showed up in the moonlight. I could see this was no man, it was a windingo. This thing was extremely gaunt and emaciated with grayish skin, sunken red eyes, tattered lips, and possessed a deathly odor. A wendigo greedily feeds on human flesh. However, for each person it consumes the monster grows ever larger, and this thing had to be at least nine feet tall with long hair reaching to the middle of its back and sharp blood-drenched claws. 
It sniffed the air it knew. I was here. I thank God that I had my shotgun. I then jumped out my hiding spot and lit it up with silver buckshot it scared in agony. It sounded like a woman's scream mixed with an angry cat. It then took a small tree and hit me like a batter hitting a baseball. I flew 15 feet and landed on a pile of human bones. This thing needed to be killed. If left alive, it would go on to eat and grow stronger. So as it came charging me, I ducked, and it hit the sit of a large rock, cracking its skull and stunning it. I took the chance to pick up and slam it on its head, load its heart full of silver shotgun shells, and then poured liquid wolfsbane into its opening chest cavity. I thought this thing smelled bad when it was alive, but when it died, few this thing smelled terrible. I made a large fire and burned what was left that night. I was pretty far into the forest, so I made camp near water and started to fish. I caught some pretty big fish and took care of my wounds from the previous night. I even decided to take a bath smelling like a wine dingo could attract unwanted company. Later at sunset, I started to cook the fish when a rustling came from the woods. Before I could react, a wahila jumped out of the brush and snarled at me. I was defenseless. This thing was ten feet on two legs and on all fours stood six feet tall. It had a large mouth and black fur with white marking on it. Its piercing yellow eyes started into my soul, and then it took three of the big fish I caught and ran into the woods. Better me than the fish, I thought. Of this was Wahila territory, then I didn't want to be around here, so I packed my bags out of my fire and took off for my camp at night. On my walk, I heard strange noises, I heard whispers in the night, and I even heard a woman scream. From above me, I heard a child scream, help me, and then I did something I shouldn't have. I looked up and I saw it. A stick Indian, it had been following me for miles, just waiting for me to notice it. Stick Indians are seldom seen. They are almost completely nocturnal, and it is said that their language does not mimic human speech, but instead sounds like birds and other animals. They also have powers to paralyze, hypnotize, or cause insanity in hapless humans, while in others, they merely lead people astray by making eerie sounds of whistling or laughter in the woods at night. In some stories, stick Indians may eat people who fall prey to them, kidnap children. They also take aggressive revenge against people who injure or disrespect them, no matter how unintentionally. This thing was tall, had long arms with big hands that ended with long claws and red eyes. It had a face like a totem pole and had a hypnotic going on with its eyes. I knew I was in trouble. I took off as fast as I could, and the stick Indian was close behind me swinging in the trees branch to branch. It swung at me and got the back of my neck but I kept running. Luckily, I was by my old cabin and took cover and locked the door. It was beating on the door and time was running out. I had dropped my weapons while running from this thing and had nothing to defend myself. I then remembered that I had left some silver brass knuckles in the nightstand in the bedroom. Also, I had found an old tomahawk, but it was still sharp. I took out the last of my liquid wolfsbane and coated the knuckles and the tomahawk with it. I have a slim chance of beating this thing, so I decided to post this before fight night went down the door just slammed open, and the locks are rolling on the floor. If I make it, I'll post how I survived this fight, but if I don't, you'll know farewell be safe.